The Revolt of 2020 by Patrick Johnston. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Patrick Johnston. Read by Daniel Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. Chapter 14 Austin, Texas After the march through downtown Austin, the large grassy field in front of the statehouse steps filled quickly to capacity. Elijah, Jared, and Natalie settled for the seat on the grass in front of a large screen at a local park two blocks away from the Capitol. Everyone was impressed with the magnificent throngs of people except Jared. Tell me why there are so many people here today and only a dozen in front of the abortion clinic when they're killing babies. They're out of their comfort zones in the right direction, said Elijah. I sense a true move of God's people. You're dreaming, quipped Jared, if you think a little flag-waving party is going to change things. What we need is a revolution. That's the only thing that will bring real change. Elijah was getting fed up with Jared's disposition to violence. I'm beginning to think if God were to turn around our country without bloodshed, you'd be disappointed. If this nation turned around without bloodshed as far along as we are down the road of tyranny, it'd be unlike every other time in history that a nation turned around, answered Jared. Jared, don't be like Jonah who got mad at God when he sent mercy instead of fire and brimstone. Be like Jeremiah who mourned at the judgment God sent, or like Jesus who wept over the judgment that he prophesied on Israel. If you were God, Jared, would you have destroyed America already? Yeah, like in 1973, Jared responded confidently. Well, you're more judgmental than God, Jared, because he didn't, Elijah smirked. If God were to judge you with the same standard that you used to judge others, you'd probably be in hell already. He's slow to wrath. He's long-suffering, and that's a fruit of the Spirit, brother. After the opening prayer, an elderly woman made her way up the stairs to the platform without an introduction and without applause. She was plump, her arthritic back was slightly hunched over, and a thin veil of makeup failed to obscure the wrinkles of her ears. There she is, said Elijah, smiling. Who? asked Natalie. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, the elderly woman spoke into the microphone with an aged voice. Forty-eight years ago, some lawyers approached me when they learned that I was denied a medical abortion in Texas because of some legal restrictions that existed at the time. Those lawyers told me to lie and say that I was raped. The lawyers told me I would be famous. I'm Jane Roe. The audience gasped. I'm the litigant in the case of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court case in 1973 that legalized abortion in America. My real name is Norma McCorvey, she said, as a ripple of applause filled the warm afternoon air. We won that court case, but not before my pregnancy proceeded to completion and my little girl came into the world. The best inconvenient surprise. She paused, clearly trying to fight back the tears that came to her dry eyes. She is the most spectacular inconvenient surprise that I could ever have hoped for. Through her I have learned that God can turn our greatest tragedies into our greatest blessings. I gave my unwanted daughter up for adoption, and what followed was twenty years of depression and drug addiction before I finally let Jesus pick me up out of the miry clay and set my feet upon the rock. Applause echoed all over the downtown Austin. Last year my forty-eight-year-old daughter found me. She is here today. Many in the crowd began to look around them in wonder, hoping to catch a glimpse of the Roe vs. Wade survivor. She's forgiven me for trying to abort her. As I look across this ocean of 200,000 faces, I realize that one-third of us are not here today. Her voice cracked and tears filled her eyes with those words. The broken hearts of their mommies and daddies are their only tombstones. Thanks to me. Her voice trailed off with a restrained sob that caused many observers to begin to openly cry. Someone in the front shouted, We love you, Norma! She smiled and a tremendous applause rumbled through the audience again, bringing many to their feet. Thank you. When the applause subsided, she continued, Our government is not content with the slaughter of the innocent Americans inside the womb. Now it seeks to take out the mentally challenged, the elderly, and the handicapped. My generation has tolerated the bloodshed of the unborn, and now the jaws of death are coming for us. 
Fathers and mothers must break the cycle by turning their hearts to their children. We must support and pray for state leaders who are being called to resist tyranny and govern rightly. Governor Henry Adams is just such a man. Please help me welcome Governor Henry Adams. It looked as if she was going to turn to walk back to the Capitol building when she paused. The applause for Governor Adams had already begun, but the clapping settled down as Norma McCorvey turned, looked into the audience, and spoke into the microphone again. I just want to say one more thing. Julie, my daughter, I love you. She smiled at an unseen recipient of that comment in the massive audience that sprawled out in front of her. As she turned to walk away, a young short-haired brunette woman leapt from the first row, rushed up the stairs past the guards and into the arms of her mother. One of the guards grabbed Julie by the forearm, but Norma waved him off. It's my daughter, she said. My Julie. They hugged for a few minutes as the audience applauded vigorously. It seemed that every eye was full of tears. After a minute, a twelve-year-old girl and a nine-year-old boy also rushed to the stage and clung to their mother and grandmother. After a roar of applause that lasted for many minutes, Norma and her family left the stage through the door of the Capitol building, and Governor Henry Adams walked out to the podium. He did not smile in response to the raging applause. Through the television cameras that focused on him, tens of millions of Americans would study his countenance and his tone and judge his sincerity and his motives. I am excited that you are all here, but in my heart I am deeply grieved. When Norma confessed that it was her fault that one-third of all Americans conceived since 1973 have been aborted, I felt guilt in my heart. He paused, held the glass podium with both hands, and looked down at where his notes would be if he had only taken them out of his pocket. His audience adopted his sobriety and grew still as their governor allowed an uneasy pause to punctuate his statements. The fault of every abortion in Texas during the years of my leadership is mine, he admitted painfully. I took an oath to protect the innocent in Texas, and I have not. I took an oath to uphold the Constitution with my hand on the Bible, and I have spurned both. I have bartered away the lives of little babies at the congressional bartering table for a little bit of an edge on other agendas. I have caved in and appointed judges who don't value human life. I have supported presidents and political candidates who promoted a culture of life in their speeches and yet funded abortion in their budgets. For that, I am gravely sorry. Another uneasy pause left the audience hanging on the edge of their seats. They had expected him to boast of his pro-life credentials, which most considered impeccable. They did not expect a public apology. At this very moment, this very moment right now, innocent Texans are huddling in the warmth of their mother's wombs, enjoying the sounds of life, the heave of their mother's laugh, taking in the nutrients and the comforts of the buoyant environment their maker has provided them during this season of their lives. And in the next moment, they will scream in utter horror as that peaceful environment is penetrated over and over again with the repetitive thrust of an abortionist's weapon. They will be dismembered piece by piece. What unspeakable... He paused to search for the right words. What unspeakable evil... He looked into the camera and pointed to the Northeast. We Texans have no business pointing our fingers at Washington, D.C. to blame them for legal child killing. No, we need to put the blame squarely where it belongs. Texas is responsible, both morally and constitutionally, for criminal justice within our borders. And Texas, my friends, has failed, miserably failed. We have lived out our lives oblivious to the silent screams of the innocent children. Texas is guilty of shedding innocent blood. He held out his hands in front of him, palms up and he looked at his own hands with disgust as if he could see the red wetness dripping off of them. Millions of Americans, in person and by way of television and radio, simply sat listening in awe. Do you think you have reason to be fearful of the federal government? He shook his head. God's wrath should be our primary concern, not Washington, D.C. God is going to take up the cause of the innocent, and he will not forget their cries. God will show no mercy to those who show no mercy. And now judgment is coming upon us. We're losing our right to life, our right to trial by jury, our right to keep and bear arms, our right to property, and our right to free speech. Some in state leadership have said that the tyranny has become so relentless and bloodthirsty that secession is the only answer. 
But God wouldn't bless the secession of Texas because Texas is under God's judgment. God stands against us because of the slaughter of his children within our borders, and we must have his blessing if we are to stay free. Our hope lies not in secession, nor in impeaching the president, nor in keeping our guns, nor in keeping the free market free, nor in protecting our right to free speech and trial by jury. Ultimately, our freedom depends upon whether we obtain the blessing of God, which we can do only if we repent. When he spoke those words, it was as if a dam burst in downtown Austin. 200,000 Americans stood to their feet and began to clap and cheer. Living rooms all over the country either burst with joyful clapping or exploded with the foulest of curses. Texas is repenting today, he shouted as he smacked the glass pulpit with his palms. Then he pointed at the camera in front of him. And in doing so, the usurpatious acts of this federal government are hereby overruled. As governor of the state of Texas, I will fulfill my obligation to do justice for the innocent, and hopefully we will be found worthy of our liberty. It is the only way that our children and our children's children will be free. The applause rose again to a consistent roar that required the governor to pause for a moment. He quieted the crowd with a wave of his hands. But this move cannot rest upon me. The moment I step off this stage, the president's brown shirts could arrest me, and I may never be seen again. Texas requires 10,000 leaders who will courageously lay down their lives if necessary to win the favor of God and resist tyranny. I am proclaiming a week-long fast from food and entertainment in the state of Texas. I am asking all of you to join me in abstaining from food and entertainment in order that we may more efficiently seek God's face in prayer. I am asking all restaurants and places of entertainment to voluntarily shut their doors for at least part of this week to join me in this statewide fast. Government agencies will do so under my authority. We must have the blessing of God. He paused, closed his eyes, and looked down. The camera focused on the tears that dripped down his face. The crowd grew silent for a moment, and then the governor turned and walked off the stage. Suddenly, applause and cheers erupted all over Austin, loud and intense. The roar was heard for miles. Terry Markison flipped the television off when Governor Adams' speech concluded. He felt shame at that moment just for being a member of his cabinet. His friend Bree walked up to him wearing fluorescent green jogging shorts and began to massage his shoulders from behind the chair in which he sat. Honey, don't get so upset. Terry turned to look at his lover, the one he married soon after Fitzgerald's equality bill passed. First it'll be the abortionists, then the gays. Bree tried to ease his worries on the way to the kitchen. You're full of negative energy. If you let them ruin your day, then they win. I don't feel like you're appreciating the gravity of the situation, Terry answered. This psychotic governor will destroy Texas. If he goes down, his aides go down with him. Who's going to want to hire a homosexual budget expert employed by an extremist anti-abortion governor? Bree tossed a careless smile over his shoulder before disappearing into the kitchen. Let's go out tonight and drink our way to amnesia. No, Bree. No, I've got work to do. Letters to write. He stood up and walked to the computer. I'm going to write some people and ask for advice. Good idea, said Bree as he lifted a flavored water from the fridge. Get it off your chest and then we can go out. The phone rang and Bree answered it. Terry and Bree's home, he said in an effeminate voice. May I ask who's calling? After a pause, he exclaimed, Oh my, just a moment. Bree cupped his hand over the phone and said, It's for you and it's important. Terry snatched up the phone on his desk. Hello? Mr. Terry Markison? Yes? This is Agent Devin Price with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Thank you for listening to this reading from the Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020 and The Uncivil War of 2020, are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's docjohnstonnovels.com. O Lord, turn us back to you.
forgive our sins, and heal our land.